Thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Danny Lennon. Danny, as many of you already know, is host of the Sigma Nutrition Podcast, which is probably the best nutrition podcast there is. So it's a real honor for me to be speaking with him today. Uh, Danny has a master's degree in nutritional sciences from University College Cork, as well as an undergrad degree in biology and physics. And he has an amazing ability to interpret nutrition research and communicate it in an easy to understand way. Um, recently, Danny wrote an absolutely amazing article for the Stronger by Science website, all about chrononutrition and how the timing of our food can have a profound effect on our health. Uh, I personally thought the article was amazing and I got in touch with Danny to see if he'd like to have a chat about the research behind chrononutrition and he was very kind to oblige me. Um, there is a huge amount of misinformation around meal timing and its importance or lack thereof in the nutrition community and I think Danny has made a spectacular contribution in making this research more accessible to the general public. Uh, I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it because I know I certainly did and if you do uh, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use and feel free to share the episode on social media too um, if that's your thing. Uh, I massively appreciate it and it would really help to promote the podcast to more people. So on to this conversation with Danny. Let's talk science. Danny, how are we doing? I'm good. How are you, my friend? I am very, very good. Great to have you on tonight. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you asking me. Oh, uh, an absolute pleasure. Um, uh, I, I suppose just uh, to to get started with everything and it's probably the most irrelevant question I'm going to ask tonight because everybody already knows the answers but um, could you tell us Danny who are you uh, and tell us a little bit about your background and kind of how you got into nutrition. Sure so uh, I'll try and keep it simple apart from the obvious that I'm just an idiot. Uh, my background I have a master's degree in nutritional sciences undergraduate degree in biology and physics and for the past uh, close to six years now have been running a company called Sigma Nutrition with the aim of putting out uh, science-based information around nutritional science and health science. Um, within that, probably most well-known for the Sigma Nutrition Radio, which has been going since early 2014. And alongside that, I've been lucky to be able to speak at various conferences and give various seminars on various topics related to nutritional science and have just continued to try and grow that in various different ways. So there are some of the overview points, but happy to dive into anything else that we may get into. Fantastic. Like um, Most people will probably know you from uh, Sigma Nutrition Radio uh, because you are the OG when it comes to nutrition podcasts. Um, and I'm using OG like I know what that actually means. I only found out a couple of days ago, so I'm, I'm delighted to actually use it in conversation. Well, there you go. Um, Your vocabulary is exploding with uh, absolutely right pop culture references. Um, <laughs> uh, like I said, Danny, I, I'm absolutely honoured that you're going to be joining us tonight because um, recently you wrote an absolutely spectacular article on um, on chrononutrition. Um, and that's what I really, really want to get into and delve into in depth with you tonight. Um, but I suppose before we get into that, one of the things I wanted to ask is, of all the, the potential rabbit holes that you can go down in the world of nutrition, what was it that drew you towards chrononutrition or what draws you towards it at the moment? Mm. 
I suppose going back several years before chrono nutrition was at the stage it is now, or even it was a concept even being discussed. Uh, I think I had a more general interest in circadian biology, and that was mainly my interest outside of anything nutrition related and essentially looking at how sleep influences health, but primarily light and dark exposure. I just got really fascinated by that the circadian system in general. And that was the kind of interest I'd had for quite a long period of time. I remember going back probably close to when Signal was even starting, having conversations with my friend uh, Robbie Burke, who's a SMC coach actually here in Dublin. And both of us had this kind of mutual interest in circadian biology. And we used to chat about that a bit, uh, but without much of the discussion that is now emerging from recent developments within chrononutrition specifically. And so as that field has grown, and really over the past couple of years, we've started to see most of the good quality human trials that I referenced in that study. Um, more and more light has been shed on it, so it was obviously quite natural for me to blend that interest with, obviously, my background being in nutritional science. And so it was just something I was interested anyway, which makes reading into it uh, a lot easier. Um, and so that was, I suppose, one of the reasons why that came on my radar, um, uh, as opposed to any of the other things that could have been picked. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I suppose just for, for anybody who might not be familiar with, with the concept of, of chronic nutrition, um, would you kind of be able to give us a little bit of, of an overview of, of what it is and kind of what it means um, to the best of your knowledge at the moment? Sure. So I suppose the, the easiest way to frame it is that we know that many important biological processes run on certain rhythms. Uh, a subset of those are daily rhythms that we call circadian rhythms. So that run at about a 24 hour period. And these repeat every 24 hours. And so we have these various different biological uh, rhythms, uh, circadian rhythms running all the time. So what we know is that what regulates or what helps set and fine tune those rhythms to a more precise 24 hours to match up with our day is exposure to external stimuli, the most powerful of those being light and dark exposure. Now, to help set those rhythms, we have what's called the master clock. So the suprachiasmatic nucleus located in the brain, or as we colloquially refer to as the master clock or the central clock. This essentially sets the circadian rhythms. However, we have other clocks located in tissues all around the body called peripheral clocks. And not only are these influenced by that central clock, but we also can have other things influence those, one of those being feeding. And so the concept now is, or the, where the whole field of chrononutrition essentially is, is how does feeding influence circadian biology and then in turn influence potentially health outcomes? And that's where the field is right now, and we can maybe talk about some of uh, the reasons why, and essentially trying to match up nutrient intake at a time that makes most sense, so to speak, from a circadian health perspective. Okay. So, so you, you mentioned specifically feeding was, was one of those ways that we have of, uh, let's say, synchronizing our, our, our clocks, this, uh, these biological clocks that we have. Um, is feeding one of the only ways that, that we have of regulating that system, or are there, are there other ways that, that we, we can kind of regulate ourselves with our environment? 
Right. So, so many things can influence uh, some of those. And this is why not only is it light and dark exposure, uh, but let's say when you have a change in people's sleep and wake times, as is the case with social jet lag, when you have time zone travel, as in the case with jet lag, you have these other stimuli that can influence the clock and cause what we call phase shifts in some of these clocks and can either cause what we have called circadian alignment, where the clocks are synchronized, um, or we can have circadian misalignment, where we can have a mismatch. And so potentially uh, activity and exercise can play a role here too. Uh, but the one uh, focused to me and with the field of chrononutrition is obviously feeding. So before we kind of get into how these kind of systems specifically affect uh, health and and other kind of aspects of our physiology. One thing that I kind of wanted to, to get into was in nutrition at the moment, um, or in nutrition for the past number of years, there's been kind of a huge amount of contrasting messages, um, especially in popular nutrition when it comes to uh, timing around food. Um, so like, you know, you'll hear concepts of like, um, you know, don't eat your carbs after 6 p.m. or, you know, don't skip your breakfast or, um, uh, as long as you, we, we can go to the other side of the spectrum and say, oh, as long as your, your calories are equated, it literally doesn't matter when you eat at all. Um, would you be kind of able to give your own thoughts on, on why these concepts have kind of proliferated, um, and how they relate to the current body of evidence that we have about, um, chronic nutrition? Sure. And I think this was one of the big reasons why I not only wrote that Stronger by Science article, but also uh, presented on this topic down in Melbourne um, at the Ultimate Evidence Bates Conference. And one of the goals was not necessarily to say, here are strategies you must use, but it was more to say we need to be critical in our thinking of what ideas we accept that are quote-unquote evidence-based that are really just an overcompensation for incorrect, flawed pseudoscientific ideas. So, for example, um, old ideas around meal and nutrient timing that used to be popular would be things like uh, you must have breakfast as soon as you wake up to stoke your metabolism. You need to eat little and often meals all throughout the day, again, to keep that metabolism revved up. If you have carbohydrates after 6 p.m., they're inherently turned to fat immediately. Um, and all these different ideas that were related to meal timing that were just not accurate. And so quite rightly, there's pushback against those ideas. Now, the problem I highlighted at the start of the article was sometimes there could be an overcompensation to the point where we have a uh, almost nihilistic, simplistic view of, well, as long as your calories and macros are okay, nothing else matters. And typically this is, can actually sometimes be a useful heuristic, like I understand why people use it, particularly with body composition, that people are focusing on the wrong things. So I totally get it and I've done it myself, said to people, hey, look, you don't need to be worrying about these precise little things as long as overall on average your calorie and macronutrient intakes is where they need to be, you can make changes to your body composition. However, to say there are no differences when it comes down to when we eat or what we eat is not actually accurate. And so the whole field of chrononutrition is essentially a way to explore the idea that actually when we eat and how we distribute our food across the day can make it, uh, an impact. Probably most 
readily we see it on metabolic health, potentially on body composition, which I'm sure we'll come to, although probably not as strong an effect, but certainly on, on metabolic health parameters. So it's just not that accurate to say as long as your daily macros are okay, then nothing else matters or there are no differences. Maybe it's not significant enough for you to worry about, but it's not correct to say there are no differences. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think probably one of the reasons that that uh, way of thinking became um, so pervasive in, the, in, let's say, popular nutrition is probably because if you look at individuals who lose a great deal of weight, um, they're probably going to see improvements in their metabolic profile, uh, regardless of the time that they're eating on just from the simple act of losing weight. But we're saying that, you know, potentially what the research is saying at the moment is that there may be differences um, on top of that weight loss that we need to take into consideration. And just to kind of get into that, I was wondering if you could kind of give us a little bit of an overview of what are some of the kind of the, the more common findings on, um, let's say, food timing and how that affects us metabolically and affects our health. What, what are some of the kind of common concepts that are, that are starting to come to light um, in this new field? Sure. So there's probably, at least for me, I broke it into four distinct areas that we can maybe touch on each of them, that they're all related, but maybe we can look at separately of meal timing. So at what time of day we have a specific meal, do we see a difference in metabolism? Uh, consistency from day to day. So from day to day, does our meal times and our meal frequency, uh, are they relatively similar or are they very different? The energy distribution, which is on a set day for X amount of calories, where is most of that energy partitioned? Is it evenly distributed? Is it more early in the day, more later in the day, so on? And then the final one, which is where probably a lot of people have most of their interest is the area of time-restricted feeding or time-restricted eating, as it would be in humans. And this is having a compressed feeding window where all our calories are consumed within a set number of hours. It could be 8, 10, 12, etc. cetera. Uh, but most usually it's within that 8 to 12-hour range in, in most studies that we see. So looking at, from an overview, I think some of the uh, ones that I would say we could pull as some early conclusions, I think, with meal timing, we see quite clearly that when you eat a meal in a day has a market impact on its metabolism. So you can take the same meal eaten early in the day versus taken and eat that meal late at night and metabolism is different. So for example, your blood glucose excursions will be greater at nighttime following that exact same meal. So same food, same calories, same macronutrients, the metabolism is different based on whether it's uh, early in the day versus say late at night. We know this quite readily from a lot of the work on uh, shift workers where we have, we can look at meals that are eaten during the night and that seems to be um, particularly problematic. So if you have a large, uh, really any sort of meal, but particularly the larger the meal and usually the higher it's carbohydrate and or dietary fat content, you're going to have a worst metabolic response. So a greater glucose excursion, so those carbohydrates, uh, you have uh, similar, you have um, a worse response in terms of free fatty acids. And so you have these changes in metabolism that are going to occur based on mealtime. So that's one finding that we see that it's not just about macros that we do see when you eat a meal can have an influence. So the kind of the 
at least the way I would look at most of that stuff is what we could say is it's probably not a good idea to have large meals, particularly with a high carbohydrate and, and or fat load close to the onset of sleep. And probably not, uh, you want, probably want to push some of the, that energy load earlier in the day as opposed to very late at night. Now, the exact specifics around that probably depend on a number of factors, which we'll probably come to. But at least I would say try not to have very large meals close to sleep onset is probably a good idea for those reasons based on, on metabolism. On the consistency piece, which was the second one I mentioned, this one is uh, relatively straightforward in that it seems that it's better to have consistent uh, meal times and or consistent uh, meal frequency from day to day as opposed to very erratic eating. So very wild changes in what time you usually have your meals. Um, and so if you're not used to eating at a certain time and then suddenly you have a large meal at day, there might be a differential response as if you have been more habituated to that. Um, and there was a couple of studies that I think I mentioned in that Stronger by Science article. One was out of the UK. I think uh, Al Hussein was the lead author on it, where they compared a two-week study of uh, one condition being the same number of meals at roughly the same time every day for the, every day of the two weeks. The other group had a variation from anywhere between three to nine meals uh, per day that changed every day. So it could be three, then seven, then four, then nine, then five, et cetera, et cetera, for every day for the two weeks. And you see differences over those two weeks in uh, glucose and insulin, for example. So it seems that it's probably a better idea to have not a precise time every day that you must eat, but roughly having regular uh, consistency to your meals from day to day. Um, with the energy distribution, this is uh, quite a large field, but still quite a lot of questions to answer, and is probably one of the most interesting, uh, at least to me, that there's a good case that you could make that pushing more of your energy earlier in the day is probably beneficial. Um, some of the early studies that suggested this might be the case include a paper from Daniela Yakubovic, who we actually talked about earlier before we started uh, going live. And one of her studies, I think it was her 2013 study, compared a large breakfast, uh, moderate lunch, and small dinner to the reverse. So it was a 700-calorie breakfast, 500-calorie lunch, 200-calorie dinner, versus the opposite, 200-calorie breakfast, 500-calorie lunch, 700-calorie dinner. So two dieting uh, conditions of 1,400 calories per day. Now, based on that study, you, you saw quite dramatic differences in the amount of weight lost over the course of that trial. Um, by memory, I think it was around maybe eight and a half kilos to three and a half, something quite large. Uh, now, I, I don't think all of that would be explained by differences in uh, just the circadian effects. There's probably some behavioral and uh, uh, adherence uh, issues going on there, but nevertheless, prescribing those two groups the exact same thing, but just differing in where the energy was placed actually had some uh, large impact. And um, off the back of that, we also see some of the work that came out of the Bath Breakfast Project. Um, uh, one of James Betts's paper compared a condition where they had a uh, fasting until 12 p.m., so nothing in the morning on the water, had their first meal of the day at 12 p.m. and then ate as normal versus a second uh, group that had to have a 
more than 700 calories before 11 a.m. And I think most of them had to come before nine, something like that. So basically a large breakfast condition and ate um, as normal after that. And as you, as we actually see quite reliably in a lot of intermittent fasting studies, the group that fasted until 12 actually ate significantly less calories over the course of the day, about 400 calories less. However, the body composition changes between the groups were the exact same. And when you look at the energy expenditure between the groups, those that had that large uh, calorie feeding early in the day, so a big breakfast, actually expended more than 400 calories more than the other group. And when you look at what the difference was in the energy expenditure, it was down to increased low-intensity uh, uh, movement. So this was low-intensity activity, I should say. So this was not any training sessions or going for a run or anything they did. It was these uh, subconscious movement throughout the day and had this pretty large increase in energy expenditure. So those things taken together could suggest that potentially by uh, distributing energy in a way where more of it is coming earlier in the day or certainly during daylight hours um, as opposed to later in the evening at night would definitely have benefits for metabolic health and metabolism of certain meals, but maybe now also impacting uh, energy balance. And if it has that, and if we see it replicated, that it does in fact change energy expenditure reliably and therefore impact energy balance, then we could maybe make a case for impacting body composition uh, in people as well. So, uh, and there's lots other that we can dig into on that, uh, but I'll, I'll leave it there for a moment because I'm, I'm conscious to, to get you to jump back in. And then the final area I said, and we can probably spend some more time on this, is the whole area of time-restricted eating. Having that shortened window of whatever that may be and what impact that may have, but uh, I expect we have some specific questions on that. So uh, I'll leave it there for the moment and shut up for a bit. You don't need to shut up at all. Like I, I would be quite happy to just leave you go if you want to, because uh, you're, you're on a roll. But like one thing that I did kind of want to, to jump in and ask about was, so you, you mentioned um, the whole energy balance equation and how that can potentially be affected by when we eat. And you mentioned that you know people who are eating earlier or eating a larger proportion of their calories earlier in the day, they've got an increase in meat in low low energy uh, uh, sorry low intensity activity during the day, and that's having a significant effect on uh, well uh, an effect that's significant enough to affect body composition, which is impressive. And that's like the the energy outside of the equation. I'm just wondering on the other side of the equation, the energy in, is there any evidence to suggest that? earlier eating or earlier distribution of calories can have an effect on appetite or uh, hunger or uh, even on cravings or anything like that? So if we go back to that Yukolovich study, um, uh, offhand, I'm trying to think where they had that large breakfast versus the, the large dinner group. Um, across the day, there was differences, uh, I believe, in a subjective hunger score and I'm pretty sure it was either that trial or a follow-up trial by the same group, I believe, uh, that also looked at um, ghrelin, which is an appetite hormone. And we see differences there. Uh, but definitely within subjective hunger. So what would see, that would seem to suggest is that having more earlier in the day uh, would mean over the course of the 24 hours that person experiencing less hunger. So um, 
the, the way you would see this graphically is obviously if you compare just the breakfast between those two groups, one is having 700 calories, the other is having 200. So of course, the one that's having 700 calories has greater hunger suppression uh, for an extended period of time. But when you go then to the opposite end of the day, and they're only having the 200 calorie dinner compared to the 700 calories, their hunger after that is not proportionate to the hunger experienced, say, by this small breakfast group at breakfast time, if that makes sense. So over the course of the day, there was less hunger, um, if I'm remembering that study correctly offhand. And then, like I said, some of the other studies would seem to suggest that. So I think there's some evidence that that would be the case. Um, I should probably mention though that I do think that there's a lot of this where there may be a learned or habituated effect to a lot of this stuff related to, to hunger. Um, and so, for example, a lot of people often report the reason why they don't like eating in an early time-restricted feeding manner is look, oh, look, I'm, I'm not hungry early in the day, but I get really, really hungry at night, so it just suits me to have a large meal at nighttime. Um, and that was actually something I used to find my, myself when I used to do that. I was like, yeah, it's just this suits me based on that. But I do think a lot of it is, in, at least in some cases, is probably habituated. And if people gave some time to actually having an earlier cutoff of their final meal and having more calories the next morning, after a while, you'd probably habituate to that and not be very hungry at night. Um, or similarly, people that say, well, I'm just not hungry in the morning. Well, if you get start getting used to having your final meal at, say, 6 p.m., guess what? I guarantee you're going to start being hungry the next morning at a certain point because you haven't eaten for a lot longer. So sure, if you're having very large meals at night, it's probably not going to be as hungry the next morning. Now, that's not everyone, and I'm sure there's an individual effect going on, but I do suspect with a lot of the hunger stuff, uh, there is a habituation uh, effect where people get used to a certain pattern, which goes back to the erratic versus consistent eating, I think, if that answers the question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as, as we kind of mentioned at the start, uh, there there are people who, you know, or, or there have been, you know, ways of thinking around nutrition that, you know, you, you don't need to, to worry about um, your uh, your timing of meals as long as, you know, your calories are equated, as long as you're in a calorie deficit or whatever. But I think from a practic practical perspective, um, if you're trying to help somebody eat fewer calories during the day, and if we're aware of the fact that giving people more calories earlier in the day has the potential to help them reduce, you know, their subsequent uh, calorie intake. I, I, I see it as being, you know, almost a, an easy win um, with some people just kind of to say, okay, just have a, have a big breakfast and, you know, uh, that will kind of help you eat less later in the day. Mm. So I, I think there's a couple of things from a practical sense going on. So even if we leave aside any physiological effect, um, at least anecdotally, what I have tend to find with a lot of people I talk to, but uh, particularly clients I, I used to coach, would be that one of the most common times for overconsumption tends to come not from main meals, but typically from snacking. And a lot of that tends to be continued snacking throughout the evening time. So let's say they have a dinner at 5 p.m., 6 p.m. Then there's a number of hours where it's quite routine for people to be relaxing at home, sitting on the sofa watching TV. And 
having relatively small snacks that seem kind of quite inconsequential, but can have a number of them over the next few hours as they're just sitting around relaxing. And so simply by having a time restriction where, let's say, you have your final uh, nutrient intake at 7 p.m., you've now taken away uh, not only feeding opportunities where they're going to be consuming calories, but any decision-making you have to make. So it can be quite cognitively easier once they get used to it that rather than saying, will I have that or will I not? How much is in that? Will I have to add this in, et cetera, et cetera? It just takes some of the decision-making away. Mm -hmm. So I think you can make a case there that, Number one, it reduces the cognitive effort to try and weigh up, should I have this, should I not? Because you just know, okay, 7 p.m. I'm done. It takes away the time of the day where a lot of people tend to tot up a lot of calories through snacking. Um, And then what it also does, if they've had more calories early in their day, I suspect for a lot of people it would take away that feeling of, uh, I feel so hungry throughout the day when I'm uh, dieting, or if they are dieting, let's say. Uh, that they're not necessarily going to feel that way if they've had more food earlier in the day. The only time they're going to be restricting more is that last couple of hours in the evening, and and hopefully there's other ways we can help them with that. Um, But there are some things I think practically might play out, at least for some people, for sure. Absolutely. It's, you know... There, there's a few arguments for, for, for kind of different strategies with different people, obviously. And um, it's just interesting to have that kind of new, those new insights from Cronin Nutrition to kind of, uh, let's say, add, add as a, a tool to a toolbox of different things that we can, we can use with when, when working with clients. Um, yeah. One thing that you also mentioned was, uh, so you've mentioned numerous times how, um, let's say, changes in the timing of meals can affect uh, in particular, uh, blood glucose, um, insulin sensitivity. I was just wondering what other, uh, let's say, cardiometabolic markers uh, are, have been seen to be affected by, by the timing of meals? Uh, so, it, well, first, we have a circadian rhythm to a lot of markers, regardless of actual meal timing. Uh, and so, for example, if we look at just the idea of we want to be in circadian alignment versus misalignment, what happens when you see, uh, say, a case of circadian misalignment? So this is when we have this desynchronization of those circadian clocks that can be caused maybe by our light and dark exposure, but in our case, we're talking about when we're feeding. When you have circadian misalignment, you see things like greater blood pressure. So there was a really nice study out of Frank Shear's lab, I think, really well controlled in a lab, and they showed you induce circadian misalignment, you see greater blood pressure over 24 hours, if we extrapolate that out now to people who have chronic circadian misalignment, particularly in the case of shift work, you now have hypertension present. You have an increase in inflammatory markers when there's circadian misalignment present. So again, a risk factor for several chronic diseases, including cardiovascular disease. Um, then with we can get into other chronic diseases if, if you wish, but there's uh, other things, for example, the impact of melatonin and how that would relate to maybe uh, cancer risk and so on. So just anything that's going to cause circadian disruption or circadian misalignment has the potential to play a role at least in some of this uh, chronic disease development. Um, with respect to metabolism of meals, so like I said, we tend to see worse blood glucose response. Uh, we see declining insulin sensitivity across the day. So that's just an inherent circadian rhythm to insulin sensitivity. 
Um, you tend to see with meals during night, I mentioned the dietary fat intake is important because you say, again, you see um, uh, essentially you would look and it would be like, it would look like dyslipidemia where you have their blood lipids are all over the place. So you, for example, you might see a change in uh, the LDL to HDL ratio in cases where someone has circadian misalignment. So basically with a lot of stuff, if you see circadian disruption, you tend to screw a lot of stuff over. Uh, if we're talking about cortisol, for example, we have a typical daily rhythm to cortisol that we like to see, where it's high upon waking, dips down throughout the day. Um, in a case of circadian misalignment, you just see that rhythm completely flipped around. Uh, so basically most stuff gets screwed up when you induce circadian misalignment. And then in terms of the other way around, where we're looking at metabolism of meals, it tends to be uh, metabolism of carbohydrate and fat that is impacted negatively. Uh, protein seems to be a bit different, and this may have implications for what we do practically for eating in the evening and especially towards night, that we may be able to use high-protein feeding or snacks without any of the deleterious metabolic consequences at least. Uh, so there'd be a few things that come to mind. Um, like with, with that list that you've just given off there, you know, it would be pretty easy to say that you know, any kind of circadian misalignment would basically just screw anybody up in a whole host of different ways. That would be a conclusion that I would probably uh, agree with, yeah. I think... Um, yeah, if, if you're, if someone is in a constantly state of circadian misalignment, um, there's not many systems that will go without being negatively affected. And of course, there's lots of things that you can do to mitigate those and try and be as healthy as possible in that context. But it's probably not as healthy as it may have been without that, right? It's why we see such profound detrimental impacts of shift work, for example, because this is one where we're guaranteed to be causing circadian misalignment on a regular basis. And you can do lots of things to mitigate that, of course, and it's, um, but we know quite reliably that it has increased risk for a whole host of stuff because of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like shift workers, for anybody considering working shifts, if you have the option, and I know that Anybody who goes onto a shift, they're going onto a shift probably because they don't have the option. But if you ever have the option, it's probably best to uh, to steer clear of that and get a get a day job, maybe. Um, right. And it's it's just a kind of one of those um, unfortunate paradoxes in life that a lot of the people doing shift work uh, tend to be well, well, at least a, a fair um, number of people that end up doing shift work are involved in healthcare and medicine. And so they are out there actually helping all of us in more ways than we can ever help them. Uh, and they have to kind of pay the penalty for this type of stuff. But Absolutely. Um, I, I do want to kind of get on to uh, the time-restricted feeding research because, again, I think it's something that is very, very fascinating. Um, and I suppose just to kind of – would you be able to give um, the listeners a little bit of an overview of what uh, TRF is specifically and then what – the, the research regarding chrononutrition is with, with time-restricted feeding strategies? 
Sure. So time-restricted feeding is where the nutrient intake takes place in the condensed feeding window. Uh, this can be any number of arbitrary hours, but as I mentioned before, a lot of the studies may look at eight to 12 hours in humans at least. And the time-restricted feeding literature is kind of born out of this whole idea of looking at things through a circadian lens of trying to match up that nutrient intake with that kind of daytime period where we want light, we want activity, and we want feeding to take place. And on the verse, then we're trying to match up sleep with periods of darkness and periods of fasting and periods of rest. And so that would be the main distinguishing factor between uh, what people often ask, is it just the same thing as daily intermittent fasting? And like a daily intermittent fast of a lean gains or a 16-8 looks similar in structure, but I think that is typically done by people as a convenient way to either restrict calories or because it's quite convenient that they like eating most of their food in a certain period of time as opposed to even thinking about it from a circadian perspective. So there's a slight difference there. Um, so with the kind of overview of the literature on time-restricted feeding, which is the term that's going to be used in animal models uh, because we are feeding them, pretty much the, the only way I summed it up when I refer to the, the animal data, and particularly rodents, is that when you look at the impact on TRF on pretty much anything, it, you see a benefit in rodents, right? They, it just seems like this magical intervention where you do whatever and TRF will be better than non-TRF. So you give the rodents a, uh, say, an obesogenic diet. So a typical fattening diet that's used in studies to cause obesity, uh, but you put it in a restricted window and it, they don't get nearly as overweight. They don't develop the same degree of insulin resistance. They don't develop the same degree of fatty liver because it's being condensed in a certain window and, and a whole host of other uh, benefits. But of course, the main thing that people want to know is, well, what about the human trials? Within human data, it seems quite consistent, I would say, that when you take um, a time-restricted eating protocol compared to a control, you quite often in a general population will see reduction in calories and therefore reduction in body weight. You quite typically also see uh, benefits for blood glucose um, and maybe fasting insulin, depending on the trial, depending on the degree of weight loss, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but you see that benefits over say, a control diet or their baseline diet. When you compare it to, um, or before we get to comparison of different types of trials, I should probably say that one of the difficulties becomes trying to tease apart those benefits on metabolic parameters where you do have weight loss occur, right? Was How much of it was down to the feeding and fasting window versus how much was down to the actual weight loss? Because as you said right at the start, we know quite clearly that a with significant weight loss tends to see improvements in certain blood markers. Um, in trials where there is uh, weight, uh, or let's say weight maintenance, there does seem to see be a benefit of uh, eating window or a restricted eating window as well. So the question beyond that becomes, what is the best type of eating window to set up? And there's a few components to look at. One would be, what is the best length of time that the feeding window should be? So how long should it be? 
Two is when during the day should we place that? And then three, which is probably a question that's not looked at as much or really at all that I can think of is even if we have an established feeding window, how much should we look at the distribution of energy within that window, which is kind of combining with what we talked about before. But probably the other two questions are what people most commonly ask. Okay, how long should that feeding window be? And where in the day should I put it? In terms of how long it should be, again, if anyone says they have the answer, it's probably incorrect because we just don't know. Uh, it seems that from some of Sachin Panda's work that uh, a lot of average people in Western populations will have a feeding window typically of somewhere between 15 to 16 hours. So that's eating for virtually most of the day that they're awake. Restricting that to down to 12 or less reliably seems to have benefits for um, uh, calories, uh, weight loss, and then also metabolic markers, depending on the trial and who we're talking about. Um, whether eight is better than 10 or nine is better than 11 or you there's no difference between eight and 10 it, it's hard to really know and to work out so i don't know what that is and practically probably the easiest way for people is to start with a window that seems quite doable that they can adhere to see how that goes and if they want to trial reducing that shorter and they notice a benefit great if it's not going to be that practically useful don't need to worry probably once they're restricted to about 12 is probably going to be fine. Now, the other point I would make is I usually use 12 as quite an arbitrary cutoff, right? So if someone has a, now a feeding window, oh, today it was like 12 and a half hours or 13 hours, how much of an issue is it? Eh, maybe not. Maybe the feeding window is just uh, heuristic for other stuff. And this is what I was trying to get at where maybe it's just a way of by restricting that window, we are – that person is unknowingly just going to push more of their energy early in the day because they're now not longer eating right until bedtime. Also, we know that trying to avoid food in those last couple of hours before sleep is a good idea anyway, and so TRF is going to achieve that. So maybe it's just a way where we are moving some of that intake earlier, preventing late-night eating, but we're also reducing the number of feeding opportunities they have to snack on stuff, even at the start of the day if they compress that window in. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, but from a practical perspective, I think a lot of people would probably benefit from some degree of restriction. In terms of where in the day it takes place, based on what we said earlier, you would probably hypothesize that having an earlier feeding window rather than later is a good idea. And that would be my, uh, it would have been my kind of presumption. And it's certainly a hypothesis I still think could be, uh, needs to be worked out and could play out to be the case. However, based on one, definitely one, but maybe two human studies this year uh, where they looked at a early TRF protocol versus a delayed or late TRF protocol. So the early was a nine hour window from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Versus the delayed one was from 12 p.m. to 9 p.m. So both were nine hours, but one was just early in the day, finishing at 5 p.m. as the last meal. The other one had 9 p.m. as the last meal. In that study, they found no real differences of note. I think there was a statistically significant difference in 24-hour glucose, but it wasn't that large or meaningful. And pretty much everything else wasn't 
that different between the groups, which was kind of surprising uh, to me, but nevertheless, there was no difference there. So it, it seems that on that, it's too early to say that uh, you definitely have to have that window earlier as opposed to slightly later. What I think might matter a bit more rather than the exact time of the window is what we talked about earlier. Where do you place your energy across the day in that window? And also what meals do you pick? So for example, rather than say, oh, you shouldn't have a 12 p.m. to 9 p.m. window because you're finishing eating too late. Well, we don't know what that diet might look like. You could have a 12 p.m. to 9 p.m. window, but that final meal might not be that big. It might be a high protein snack, for example, right? And you could push more of your energy and carbohydrates earlier into that window. It's still a uh, nine hour window that ends at 9 p.m., but it looks markedly different to saving all your calories and carbs and eating them right before 9 p.m., right? So there's these differences that are hard to capture uh, in that. Um, so whether that plays out or not, I'm not. Uh, not too sure. So as of right now, it seems some degree of restriction is probably good. Um, still unclear of how much of a difference it makes to have uh, an early to a late one, but I do believe there are some papers to be published that are due to be published, I suppose, within the next six months or so that may shed a lot more light on this. Uh, so they would be some of my thoughts, and hopefully that answers some of the questions. <laughs> Like it, the more you talk about it, Danny, like the, the more fascinating it sounds. Um, and, and like you know, the, the more I, I kind of want to delve into this um, when I get a chance. Like obviously, you know, we're, we're getting across the idea of like you know this potential set feeding window or restricted feeding window is um, having one of those is, is a good plan. Moving your uh, your calories or the, a larger proportion of your calories to earlier in the day is a good plan. Are there any situations that we need to be aware of where following um, like those kind of chrononutrition-related guidelines are not going to be ideal? Yes. Uh, I think it's a really good question, and I think I, I try and be very clear there are some clear exceptions to some of these general heuristics, and that's why I intentionally use the word heuristic as opposed to set recommendation. Um, so there, let's take a few hypotheticals that may explain some of this. Let's say we are working with a competitive bodybuilder who is in a gaining phase and wants to gain the maximum amount of muscle they can. Would it be a good idea to give them a six-hour feeding window because that's going to be good for, from a circadian health perspective? No, because that doesn't align in any way with their priority goal, which at this time point is building as much muscle as possible and being the best in a particular sport they want to be. By restricting that window, we are reducing, number one, the amount of feeding opportunities they have to get enough calories in across the day. Two, we may be impacting their ability to have a post-workout meal after a certain training session. Three, we're restricting how many high-protein feedings they can have across the day, and then in theory maximize muscle protein synthetic response. So we are making it incredibly more difficult to achieve the nutrition uh, outcomes that we want for this particular type of person. So again, it comes down to who is this individual and what specific goal do they have. Similarly, uh, I've worked with quite a lot of combat sport athletes. So some of the pro MMA guys are training at least twice a day, maybe six days a week, 
some doing more, incredibly intense training sessions, would it make sense for me to say, don't have a meal after 7 p.m. when some of them are finishing training at 8 p.m., 9 p.m.? No, it doesn't make any sense, right? For a certain athlete, let's say a competitive swimmer that's clocking up hours and hours and hours in the pool and has an insanely high caloric intake, does it make sense to have a restricted feeding window when they're already struggling to eat enough calories? Probably not. Now, you can still use some of the strategies that I've mentioned for sure, but you need to make sure they don't undermine the actual fundamentals of nutrition that we already know work. That uh, the nothing I've said contra, uh, contradicts uh, energy balance being fundamentally important, making sure protein dose and distribution across the day is in place, making sure overall food quality is good, making sure that person can adhere to those principles and actually do it on an ongoing basis. So anything that undermines those fundamental things are not worth doing, even if theoretically they could improve things from a circadian standpoint. So just use kind of critical thinking as a coach before I use any of these strategies or recommend it to this person. Number one, what is this person's goal? What context and scenario surrounds them? What does their lifestyle, et cetera, look like? And does, is this going to be conducive towards those or is that going to make it necessarily more difficult or distract from that? So uh, there are a couple of examples um, that I would give. Um, and then there's actually one that might be interesting for people, a, a small bit of good news, because one of the most common things when I discuss the impacts on uh, blood glucose from late night carbohydrates um, or evening time carbohydrates having worse glucose excursions and earlier in the day. Uh, one particular problem is for those who do a lot of training in the evening time. So late afternoon, evening is a typical training time. And most reliably, they want to have a post-workout meal that has a decent degree of carbohydrate in that. And then they start getting worried when I say, well, blood glucose excursion is going to be worse. One of the cool things we see with, let's say, you go and lift some weights, you do a resistance training session, is we get something called um, glute 4 translocation, which is essentially after doing resistance training, that muscle contraction has caused a glucose transporter inside the muscle cell to come to the surface of that cell. And that glucose transporter now allows glucose to move from the bloodstream into that muscle cell. However, what's kind of cool is it does this in an insulin-independent manner, or what we call non-insulin-mediated transport. So without requiring the action of insulin to, to work here, we can have glucose disposal. We can move that glucose from the bloodstream into that muscle cell. So now even late in the evening, when we are more insulin resistant or at least less insulin sensitive than early in the day, we can now have efficient glucose disposal if we've lifted some weights or done some um, intense muscle contraction in the hours previous to that. So for people who do train and still want to have some carbohydrates afterwards, they can probably do so without some of those deleterious effects on blood glucose that I mentioned earlier in the conversation. I, I, I think um, that one, one thing that comes to light from that conversation is just, one, it's very, very important for people to be able to distinguish the difference between health benefits and then or health goals and the goals somebody might have when it comes to improving body composition from the perspective of, uh, let's say, muscle growth or, or even sports performance. Like, while I think 
exercise and nutrition are inextricably linked with health. I do think that there are situations where they don't exactly work together and, um, you know, they're, they're not exactly working in the same direction. And that's where, you know, I think like for, for somebody who's trying to gain as much muscle as possible, um, you know, they're going to need to eat quite regularly. They will be eating later at night. It's not necessarily going to be as good for them as, um, as eating fewer meals. But then again, they, they won't get as much muscle growth. So I, yeah, I thought that was a, a really, really um, kind of interesting point that you brought up there. Um, one thing that I particularly liked about the article, uh, um, Danny, and I'm really conscious of your time now, so I, 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 I won't go into it too much, but was the pragmatic points that you left at the end that, you know, you really, really do need to take into consideration the individual and their circumstances when you're trying to integrate this chronic nutrition into their lifestyle. Um, and, and I think, you know, just nutrition in general, that that pragmatism and that ability to critically think about a situation based on, you know, the information that you have and based on the individual you're working with is, mm. is hugely important. And, um, like for anybody who hasn't read the article, um, it's up on stronger by science. It is, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And, um, like the, um, as, as somebody who's writing, um, a lot of academic stuff at the moment, I really appreciate the amount of work that must've gone into, um, to producing that. So I just want to say thank you for that, Danny. That's a, like I said, it's an amazing contribution to, to kind of nutrition at the moment. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, man, because, uh, yeah, you, you are not wrong in the assessment that a lot of work went into that, and probably to an obsessive degree, uh, but I'm glad that it, 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 I did that because it turned out, I was relatively happy with it, and, and particularly when I knew I was going to send it across to Greg and Eric to look at, uh, that was something that I wouldn't do unless I had done sufficient amount of preparation for it because they, Greg certainly wouldn't publish something on his site with a reputation he has carefully built that would distract from that in any way. And I knew how um, thorough the two guys are in looking through the references, making sure everything is accurate. Um, and so, yeah, it was kind of uh, a bit nervous to see their reaction to it. So thankfully they liked it and wanted to put it up. So, um, yeah, it was, I suppose it was worth the time. Yeah, Greg likes to give off the impression of being a, a total nice guy, but I can imagine that if you run a, a bad reference past him, he'd absolutely tear you apart. So, um, right, yeah, <laughs> there's some things where he doesn't tolerate and, and bad science is probably high on that list. Uh, Daddy, another silly question, um, but it's something I have to ask. Anyway, um, if people want to follow you or if, if there's somebody who's watching this who's not following you, I, I, I doubt they exist, but um, where can they follow you and where they can, can they learn more about you or get in touch? Sure. Pro well, probably the easiest scene as right now that they may be watching on Instagram. If that's one of you people, then just click into my profile and, and hit follow. Uh, for anyone listening to the podcast, obviously you can go and do that as well. Uh, my Instagram is Danny Lennon underscore Sigma. Uh, probably just the two other places. SigmaNutrition.com is pretty much everything about me, podcasts, articles, our coaching services, uh, other resources. Everything is up on SigmaNutrition.com. And then if you are into podcasts and you want to listen to uh, my contribution, then Sigma Nutrition Radio is on all podcast apps as well as Spotify. Um, and that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, probably anywhere on social media, probably up to just type my name in and find me somewhere. 
I, I can't believe that you'd actually have the cheek to promote your own podcast on my podcast. <laughs> That's what it's all about, man. It's, it's all I have to contribute to the world. I, I've actually, I've mentioned this a couple of times before, like, cause your, your podcast has come up when I've been speaking to other guests on the show, like live. And I've literally said, if you're not following Danny Lennon right now, I give you permission to just stop watching this live. I just go over and check out. <laughs> um, kind of you. Thank you. But Danny, look, I, I just want to say thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, I'm absolutely blown away by the amount of information that you have on the subject. And I'm, I'm even more fascinated now having spoken with you. Um, this is something that we could like go on a lot about, but, um, you know, I, I'm conscious of your time. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for, for sharing everything with us tonight. And then just thank you for everything that you do in the world of nutrition for the, the podcast, for all the talks that you do. You know, um, uh, it's, it's, you, you do some fantastic stuff for the industry and it's great to know that you're Irish as well. <laughs> Right. Man, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I could talk about this stuff forever, so I'm glad that you, you asked me to do it and you entertained me while I rambled on for a bit. And uh, for anyone that is either watching or listening, I hope something in there was in some way useful and, and interesting. Um, and if not, you can just send your complaints to Richie, not to me. <laughs> Thanks for that, Danny. Uh, Danny, thank you very, very much. Hopefully, we'll get to chat again very, very soon. Um, have a great evening. Thanks, man. Great to chat. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. If you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use or maybe even share a link on social media. It really helps to spread word of the podcast and it really means a huge amount to me personally. Uh, if you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of our guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at b underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.